Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a new podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies. We sit novelists and critics down together to explore the making of novels and also what to make of them. I'm one of your hosts, John Plotz, and you'll be hearing from my partner, Arthi Vade, in upcoming episodes. So today I'm joining conversation by the novelist, Catherine Lacey, and the critic and scholar, Martin Puchner. So what is this podcast exactly? So years ago at a conference, Arthi and I heard a novelist described the experience of talking to academics as, quote, inviting a cow to a butcher's convention. So we would have preferred a slightly different metaphor, maybe something like inviting a cat to a high school biology lab, but we do take the point. Still, over the years, we've found that some novelists love to talk with scholars about the underpinning, the ground rules, the history of their form and their writing. So the idea of novel dialogue is to invite a novelist and literary critic to talk about novels from every angle, how we read them, how we write them, publish them, analyze them, and remember them. So our aim, dear listeners, is to bring you lively, sophisticated dialogues that dissect the art of novel writing and consider the influence of characters, plots, and stories on how we think about the world. Uh, If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Novel Dialogues on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast, and spread the word to friends who may feel the same as you. So it's a great pleasure to draw the curtain up on Novel Dialogue today by welcoming my polymathic and highly sophisticated friend, Martin Puchner. Uh, professor of English and theater at Harvard, general editor of the Norton Anthology of World Literature, and author of many prize-winning books, among them The Written World, and an already celebrated new memoir, The Language of Thieves, my family's obsession with a secret code the Nazis tried to eliminate. Hello, Martin. It's good to see you, John. It's very good to see you, too. Um, he's joined in our virtual studio, our Zoomio, I guess we could say, by the brilliant novelist Catherine Lacey. Hello, Catherine. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's so great to have you. So she is the author of three novels, most recently in 2020, The uh, Spooky and Slippery Pew, which I bet we will hear a lot more about today. And her earlier works include The Art of the Affair, which is a 2018 collection of short stories. Oh, sorry. The Art of the Affair 
and a 2018 collection of short stories called Certain American States. I love that title. And two novels, The Answers in 2017 and, uh, and 2014's Nobody is Ever Missing, which I love both for its portrait of a mind on edge and because it tells the story of an American in distress decamping to New Zealand. So, you know, reading that in 2020, all I could think was, take me with you. Yes, take me with you. So it's a real honor to have you both and a pleasure to declare the novel dialogue open. So over to you guys. Okay, great, 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 John. Um, and, and I wanna say that even though my role here is that of the critic, which I'm, uh, uh, always happy to fulfill. I don't think of myself as a like an expert on Catherine's novels. I, I'm a reader of them. I'm, I'm thrilled by them. I'm freaked out by them. I'm puzzled by them. I'm dazzled by them. So as a, as a reader, really, this is how I see my role, a reader responding to this wonderful writer. To start as a, as a kind of my overarching response or the response I most often have when I read you is, is the sense that there is something, I don't know, feral about these fictions you write. Often characters who run away, including, uh, as John just mentioned, to, to New Zealand. And that's, of course, a sign of someone really being in trouble. Um, and uh, or somehow dropping out of socialization, different layers of socialization being stripped away, some form of escape. Most prominently and fully perhaps in your most recent novel, Pew, but in Nobody's Ever Missing as well. Um, so there, there is a kind of through line I see there. And then what I find fascinating as a reaction to that you have people starting to help, people starting to assist these SKPs in one way or another, and help often turns into compassion or can, and then into a, a almost a kind of need to re-socialize them in one way or another. Again, I'm primarily perhaps thinking of Q. So this is just sort of a, a first reaction, Catherine, and I want to throw this at you and see how, uh, what you do with it. Well, I, I really like this word feral to sort of describe uh, like a through line through the work. And I would actually push against what you said earlier that you're, you don't feel like you're an expert. Well, I don't feel like, I mean, I don't think any, nobody's necessarily an expert on um, anyone's work in some ways because there's lots of different ways to read it. But I do think that you certainly are, are more an expert than, than I am because it's the weirdest, you, it's really, it, it's strange how difficult it is to read and understand your own work. At least it has been for me, especially when I like think I know what something is about, or I think I know, you know, what this, uh, what a short story or a novel that I've already written maybe years before, I feel like oh, I'm done with it. I know, I know what that story was about. And inevitably I'm wrong about it. If I have to look back or if somebody brings it up, I see it differently in it. I realize that a reader has a very different relationship to the work than I do. And that's, I think at first, that's maybe one of the things that is, feels really scary about uh, writing is that once you put it out there, somebody is going to interpret it, um, you know, whether positively or negatively or weirdly or whatever, it feels kind of frightening. Um, like you want to be able to control what the reader is going to see in, in a work. But I think, um, you can't. And, and like the longer I do stuff, the more I'm just like, 
people are going to have their interpretations of things and none of them are valid or invalid necessarily. This is partially why I really like this word feral and your um, sort of uh, detecting a kind of rejection of sort of social norms as a dominant feature in all the books. And I had never really thought about that. And I feel like it, that's a better way to me to describe, like, I feel like, um, I feel like there's been a, the through line that I've been told about, about the books is that they're uh, about like uh, mental illness or depression or loneliness or like, you know, something like this. And I, um, I think like maybe that's, I mean, certainly that's a part of, it's a part of a lot of books. I feel like it's sort of, um, loneliness is tends to be a subject of almost every novel and in one frame or another at some point. Um, but I always sort of felt like that was a kind of limited or just like a little bit, not quite the right size of the interpretation. And I think um, just this world feral, just like, I, I just, I, I, to me, it's like clicking so many things in my head of, um, I feel like I see, I see it every, I see it all over the place now. And so I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, oh, great. Great. You know, it's very interesting to me just to pursue this a little further that you just mentioned as one of the misreadings or mistakes if someone gets a name wrong, because the names, again, I'm thinking primarily of Pew, where even the name is sort of stripped away, right? A, a nameless mm -hmm. person in a way uh, washes up in in pews and in 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 in, a ch in church pews, and then gets adopted, and then is called pew because the need to have a name. So uh, it's it's interesting to me that the name you think is a kind of hot button issue. Yeah, I don't. I I've always sort of had a weird thing about names. I um. I just I I I, I like renamed myself a couple times when I was a kid, no, and really? like I I often yeah I often have these like. Um, I mean, I've legally changed my name. Like, I just, I feel like name, I don't know, names, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of power in a name. And I think, um, I think we, we naturally like recognize that. I think at a young age, like you want or don't want a nickname or you do or don't like your middle name or you don't want, you know, there's, there's some power in being named and sort of, or choosing a name. Um, and then, but I think in fiction in particular, there's also something kind of limiting about a name. And I, I often, I found myself gravitating more and more towards um, like nameless narrators um, or like sort of delaying the uh, naming a character as long as I can to the point where like even this novel that I'm finishing right now, um, the character doesn't have a name. I mean, she has to have a name like in the reality of the book somewhere, but it's never learned because it never really seemed relevant. Can I, I want to continue with this ferality theme, which I really like. And just, can I ask how you would connect it to a, a kind of American road tradition, because there's a way in which pulling out of society is kind of like just geographically displacing. You know, I'm thinking of Huck Finn, but I'm actually also thinking yeah. a lot about Marilyn Robinson, like housekeeping or something, like the people who leave and the people who stay. So yeah, the, the sites of connection and sites of difference, I guess, yeah. I love housekeeping, but I hadn't read it until just a, a few years ago, but I, I think my dad read Huck Finn out loud to me like twice during my childhood. Like mm -hmm. he would sit us all down and we had to like, you know, be read to aloud at night. Um, I, I mean, I just, I, I mean, it must, it must be, it is a kind of, you know, in some ways we were three American, well, not totally American, but 
free uh, Americans of, of from different stripes um, sort of trying Mar to- Mar Martin is a motorcycle riding American. He's a total American, uh, <laughs> like a California motorcycle guy. <laughs> but you were born in Germany. Yeah. I was born in Germany. Yes, I read the book. Um, <laughs> and I rode but, a motorcycle only very briefly and without a license. So <laughs> I don't know whether that makes it more or less. That's American. super American. More American. Yeah, trying to, to get away with something. But I, I mean, it's it's funny how, like, yeah, I think na naturally, like that is that is a when you look at, when I read books from other cultures or countries, you don't see that this, um, this trying to run away, this trying to do things by yourself, this sort of um, war between independence and interdependence is a kind of conflict we keep on playing out and out in, in a million different ways in America. And to the point where like, to me, it just seems like, well, isn't that, the, isn't that like a human problem? But it is a, maybe to some degree, but I think of course it is like a, it's a more American, it's, it's like one of America's favorite problems. To in a way, reconnect to the first topic we talked about, uh, I was struck that that there is a very keen spatial awareness that, that I feel uh, uh, runs through a lot of your work, especially, I'm thinking especially of interior uh, spaces, rooms, like, you know, cat sitting for an ex-boyfriend and what it feels like to re-inhabit that space that you know so well, of course, in pew, the pews themselves, you know, mm -hmm. what it's like to sleep in, in, a, in a pew and wake up when church services is going on. Uh, I, I, I felt like I feel that, that, that very vividly, even though, as you say, you don't just visualize a lot of characters, what they look like. I think you do visualize a lot the environment in which they find themselves. Right. I think... I I wouldn't, I, I didn't necessarily consciously know this um, and maybe I'm wrong about it, but I feel like part of why I tend to write fiction that is more kind of, um, like, I guess I want the reader, I want the reader to feel like they are looking at the space. Like I, even if it's a third person narrator, I want them to feel like they're inhabiting the, the character rather than watching the character. Um, I mean, there's, you know, and maybe that'll change over time or maybe like that, that is more or less true in different books or stories, but, um, on, on, on this topic, at least like the, the sort of presence of spaces, um, I don't know, I, I guess, um, I guess part of it, like, so when I was a, a little kid, we, we had like a, a community theater in my like small hometown. And I did a lot of community theater and I got really into like, uh, like, uh, you know, auditioning for stuff. And then like did the school plays and then like did, I went to like Shakespeare camp. So I was like really into like monologues and like sort of, um, sort of pursuing that as a kid. And one of the problems that I encountered doing that was that there were, there were sort of no monologues for children. There were only these like monologues that were like, if you had to, you know, go to an audition and prepare a piece or something, you only could be like, you know, like how is a seven-year-old going to do like Blanche Dubois or something like this? It's just like, it kind of really can't happen. And so, um, so I, I was always, and even like Shakespeare, you know, it's like, I, I did Lady Macbeth when I was a teenager and it sort of felt absurd to me. I'm like, I don't even know what it's like to be married. Like, I can't think about like murdering somebody with your husband. It's just a lot, you know? Um, and even though I do feel like kids can tap it, whatever. 
I felt like I wanted to write my own monologues, you know, because I was like, wouldn't it make a lot more sense if I just came up with somebody and inhabited them and did it? Um, and so that was like the first time I ever, I wasn't like trying to publish them or be a playwright or write fiction even at that time, but it was sort of a, it was a problem and I was solving it with this. And then I kind of always, I think because that was the first way that I um, really wrote fiction, it was sort of, to me, it seems natural to sort of think about it as a, as like a first person thing. And when, um, when you're like in a sort of first person fiction space, um, to me, at least it makes the most sense. Like I have to know what I'm looking at at all times. And I feel like every, every scene, every story, every book, I have to know what the spaces look like. And I spend a lot of time like thinking more about that than about anything else. Not because I really want to describe like, you know, the exact couch or whatever, it, that's not important. But if I know where this, what the space is, then I can sort of move around in it freely. Um, yeah, it seemed yeah. to me not so much a question of precise description or something like that, but more a kind of interest in, as I, I, I keep coming back to that one short, short story, the, the, the cat sitting for the ex-boyfriend and sort of what it feels like to inhabit the space with a certain kind of, that has a certain kind of history and then come back to it and, and all of that. Yeah, well, I mean, it sort of adjusts your body. You know, like when you when you come home, you you there's a certain way that you move in your home that's very different than the way that you move at your friend's house or at the grocery store or wherever. Like we have sort of different postures and different ways of um, holding ourselves. And um, I think also partially because I have sort of gravitated towards first person narration on on the whole. To me, like a, a syntax is a reflection of like what is happening bodily in um, the person speaking, whether it's they're speaking in your head or, or, you know, speaking out loud. Um, it's a, it's, you know, the language is the representation of what's happening in the body. And so I need to really know like what that body feels like. And so the one, one way to like, I guess I come at it the other way. If I think about the space, then sort of the space creates the character, then the character creates the body and the body creates the voice rather than the other way out. Um, yeah, that's yeah, a great that's, that's a great description that totally resonates with my experience as a reader. Yeah. Great. And you know, you you I think you mentioned to me that you traveled to Greece in part mm -hmm. uh, preparation of that which put to mind the fact that you've you know we both met in in Berlin a few years ago when we were riding there in this weird uh, uh, villa on the Wannsee. Um right. Uh, you, you know, you've you've lived in different places, uh, uh, and, and I feel like you, one can sort of get a sense of that in your in your work as well. What what does uh, you know writing in a particular location? What does that what does that mean to you, or is that important at all? Oh, it's, it it it's important on so many levels. I, I mean, yeah, I wrote my first book mainly in this like one cafe and this one spot like this one chair at a specific time of day like every every like five days a week or something um and i mean before that i don't really know i, I don't i mean i was just sort of i think you know i think it only space only really starts to matter like when you know when i really have something going you know it just like i don't have like I don't have like my little reading nook that like I have to, you know, I have a little writing nook where I have to come here every day and do this or that. It's not, I'm not like precious about it. It becomes more, um, it's more like project specific where um, like I had to, you had to or at least for me, I had to like trick my brain into sort of 
returning to the same space fictively when you're, you know, cause you're not in the same space. Um, it, if it takes me, you know, three years to write a book, I'm not the same person at the beginning that I was at the end. So how can I make a space that's static that I return to hmm. so that the, the voice of the book can be consistent. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's like different types of books. So like the answers, for instance, I feel like there's like three different spaces that the character is inhabiting. And I did, I think, I mean, I wasn't so regimented to say I'm going to write this part here and this part here and this part here, but it did kind of, I think, naturally sort of work out that way that in order to like finish um, where the character is in this one part of the book, I had to sort of have a, a space that was consistent. Um, but yeah, but travel has been really important too. But part of that is just like collecting sets. You know, if we think about the uh, a novel or a story sort of being a kind of play in your head at, at the beginning, at least. Um, if I know, like, I know what it's like now on this island in Greece where like how, what it feels like to sort of walk through these little paths in between the little stucco houses on, on this island, you know? And I just, even if I looked at it, pictures of it a million times, I didn't know what it felt like to sort of navigate through those spaces. There's no way I would ever write anything in that space, you know? Um, I mean, in some ways it's like, it's so silly, you know, cause you know, you don't need to go to Berlin to write a novel set in Berlin. And I always thought oh, these stupid novelists are always like making up these trips they have to take and research like, Oh, I have to go to Greece for research. It's like, no, you don't, you probably don't, but it's better if you do. <laughs> um, I have found like, I, I'm not going to write some, I'm just not going to write something unless I've been there, unless I've been in the space that, I want it that I want it to happen in or that I can mush two things together. But and so the the obvious follow-up question, what have you been doing during the lockdown? <laughs> um uh just sitting here. I mean, thank what, goodness what, I what had I mean, has it hampered this spatial plotting of the place of, of your writing? Um, I mean, to, to some degree, yes, because um, I do like being able to physically relocate to like go to a space and sort of go to a mode. And now just, just being at home. Um, I had never, I've never written at home for this long. I usually would use public spaces in, in one degree or another. Um, but also, um, I'd also think that, you know, whatever, whatever a writer, especially like a younger writer thinks is necessary to them doing their work, whether it's, I have to have, you know, it has to be, it has to happen between these two hours or it has to happen. You know, I have to have this kind of pen or this kind of paper. Or I only do longhand first, or I only write on the computer, whatever you think it's not true. None of, none of them, none of these things that you have to have are ever really true. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, now I'm a person that just writes at home every morning from this hour to that hour. Um, and I do have, there's, I mean, I, this is the first time I've ever lived in somewhere that like I had a room that I didn't uh, sleep in and make dinner in and live with another person in. So like there's more than, there's enough space in this house for the first time ever that I can uh, go upstairs or downstairs, <laughs> um, this corner or that corner. And so um, I have found that I do, I was doing like, uh, it's like, it's hard to, for me to remember what was I doing, but I was doing one kind of work in this room that I'm talking to you from. And then when it was time to work on something different, I think it was a screenplay. When I was working on the screenplay, I was like, 
I just went to a different room so I didn't confuse the spaces. But it wasn't like I I just did I just naturally did it. And it wasn't a premeditated thing. Did, that's what I think cats do. Like when I watch a cat I, in the house, mm-hmm. I think it's like, oh, I've got important work to go do in the window. I better go over there. Yes, yes. Um, well, my okay. dog, he gets a, he gets like a little <laughs> dental treat every morning yeah. and he takes it and he goes to the same spot on the rug where he doesn't yeah. really do anything else on that rug, yeah. just has a dental treat and he works on that. And then it's time yeah. for him to move on. But so I think in just Russia, a- isn't the place where the icon sits in an old Russian house called the beautiful corner. And I always think, you know, with cats, cats have a beautiful corner and then they have a business corner and a, yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, that's the pandemic. <laughs> like- I, we're all house cats now. Everyone's a house cat, whether you want to be or not. Yeah. Um, so you guys, as we as we sort of round the corner here, can I just ask a final sort of n- novel studies question, just to ask you both basically what fiction you're you're reading now, and you know how it's whether it's having any effect on how you think about you know novels, novel writing, or yeah, or the novel, I guess. Um, I was like, couldn't write. I couldn't read fiction for a, a little while. I was having trouble with it. Uh, but then I got, I went on this sprint lot, like, like lately, and I've just read, or I just reread, um, the babysitter at rest, which is a, it's like six, it's like five or six stories, but it kind of works as a novel, but it kind of doesn't by an, a writer named Jen George. Um, I loved it. It's so weird. It's from this small press called, um, the Dorothy project, which does, I think all it's like, they do like t- maybe 10 books a year or something. And they're all women. And there's a lot of books in translation they do. And, um, that one was really wonderful. And then also a book that's coming out, I think in January called the Copenhagen trilogy. And now I've, I'm blanking on the woman's name. She's like a very important, I'm going to look it up. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Maybe Martin, you can answer and, and then I will bounce back with mine. You know, I've, I've been reading a lot, uh, you know, in the last half year and John, I think on some other podcasts, we talked in the early days where I, I just good. pure escapism. I read a lot of PG Woodhouse as I think other people did as well. Uh, then I had, you know, I caught up on Murakami and that was another form of escapism. So they, I didn't go through a, you know, a, a Boccaccio Camus plague phase. I wanted to actually not think about plagues. Uh, you yeah. know, then then I I read Catherine Lacey. Oh, All right. okay then. <laughs> to Tove Ditle, Ditlevson is Ditlevinson. I don't I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, um, she's a very important mid twentieth century um, writer. At, and why am I blanking on the country? I, my brain is just short circuiting. I'm sorry. Well, Copenhagen uh, might be Danish. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, Den- I was like Denmark and and Danish sort of just you got a little together. breakfast treat confused. Yeah. yeah. Um. Anyway, she was. Uh, it's there's three novels um, that are kind of all autobiographical, um, and just very dark, very wintry, but her, her language is so elegant and they're the, um, yeah, you just can't believe what she's going through. And, but the way that she just moves between, you know, divorce to abortion, to this, to that, it just bounces right on. It's like, it's not a beat, but it, there's something really clean and elegant about the language that mm. is, I don't really know how to describe it. Very icy. Um, so you guys, the final question that we like to ask everybody on this 
podcast is just basically, Kevin, can you talk about like a treat for you or a way that, you know, something you you do when you're in the midst of writing either, you know, to just reward yourself or break a break a spell or I don't know, like any, anything you want to share like that? I wish I had more of a kind of, I think I'm a little too ascetic or something, but um, I mean, I, I, I drink a whole French press every morning just for me. That's awesome. <laughs> um, but no, I wish I had, I wish great. I had like a better uh, taking a walk. I mean, it's simple, simple joys right now. I think a, yeah. a walk is a walk with nothing with you and no destination to me is just total luxury and completely necessary to finishing anything. I feel like every time I've had been stuck on how to finish something or figure out how to, um, how to get out of some hole that I've dug myself into fictively, a walk is the answer every single time. So then you and Dickens do have one thing in common then. You oh, can- yeah, me and like, <laughs> I think 90% of all writers forever <laughs> that have two feet and walk around. Yeah. Well, so, okay, as we come to the end then of uh, another novel dialogue, I'll just say that, you know, we would really like to thank you guys so much. This is great. Um, And I want to thank the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship of the podcast and also acknowledge support from Brandeis University, the Mellon Connected PhD program, and from Duke University. Nye Kim is our production intern and designer. Claire Ogden is our sound engineer. And there are upcoming dialogues, uh, which we hope you will also tune in for, which include Bruce Robbins speaking with Orhan Pamuk, Kelly Rich with Teju Cole, and Elizabeth McMahon with Helen Garner, author of The Children's Bach and a truly amazing novel about addiction, Monkey Grip. So, um, you know, you guys, thank you once again. And from all of us here at the Butcher's Convention, uh, thank you for listening and talk to you again soon. Thank you.